Well, thank you again to John for stimulating our thinking. I'm going to be looking for questions, uh, so please let me see where your hands are for if you're wanting to ask questions. Um, and let me know as quickly as possible, and I'll direct Katrina, who is the mic here, uh, to wherever you are. Please don't ask your question until the mic gets to you so that everyone can hear it. Up the back, first of all, Katrina, yeah. MDL, can I see MDL other hands just now? Oh, yeah. Hello, I'm asking from here. Sure, we are told that Charles Kennedy trusted the bookmakers and told, for instance, Alistair Campbell several days beforehand that he, Charles, was going to lose his seat. He trusted, we understand, the bookmakers better than the other polls. And I'm believe he's not the only one who has done this. Where do the bookmakers get their information? Um, from the opinion polls. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly all the arguments about, you know, the bookmakers are better at predicting what's going to happen than are the opinion polls. Um, is all does tend to ignore the fact that you know one of the crucial pieces. I mean, they're basically there are essentially two crucial things that, that, that go into the bookmakers' odds, which of course are completely um, uh, created by the money that people put in favour of various propositions. But one is the opinion polls, and two are the preferences of the people involved. You you, you will usually find that the betting markets are a little more conservative than are the polls themselves because the people who bet on the betting markets are disproportionately conservative supporters. Um, but um, even though that is the case, I am told, and I have to say to you, I don't understand betting markets at all. And there's, there's a guy called Mike Smithson who runs a website called politicalbetting.com, and it's a really good website. It tells you lots about opinion polls, but I have to say to him, Mike Smithson, who runs it when I see him, I just don't understand. You know, he kind of you know, bets this way, and then he does a covering bet that way, and he does something else. You know, he seems to know how to bet, so he's bound to win, which I, don't, I just frankly do not understand. But anyway, um, but... Um, the, you know, uh, according to his reckoning, the betting markets also underestimated how well the Conservatives were going to do. So far as Charles Kennedy's own seat is concerned, of course, um, uh, the polls that were being done by Lord Ashcroft also suggested that Charles Kennedy was going to lose, along, frankly, with every other Liberal Democrat on mainland Scotland, which, of course, is exactly what happened. So, yeah, I think that's, it was, there, were, there was no disagreement there between the polls and the markets. Oh, um I was just wondering, do you think opinion polls would be improved if any opinion poll had to uh, publish their statistics with the opinion poll itself? So maybe not in the paper, but certainly a link to the data and the methods used. The answer to you is that they do have to. Um, they do have to, at least, if they are members of the British Polling Council, which is the organisation I'm president of. They, it's an, it's an organisation that it doesn't impose rules of methodology, i.e. how polls should be conducted, but it does impose rules of transparency. And essentially, every polling company has to, first of all, have a written statement of the way in which the poll has been conducted, and it also has to publish the detailed computer tables uh, for every opinion poll. And from that, you can usually work out 
you know, for example, how many... Un- you know, my ability to tell you that they, all these polls have too few, middle, too few working class and too few young people is because I look at, look at the, the tables. Uh, the website I run, what Scotland thinks is... The only reason I could be able to run it is because all the polls are already available. That just simply brought them all together in one place. So the answer is they do. There are, there are rules um, uh, about transparency. Now, that said, one of the, the terms of the reference of the inquiry that's now been set up is, well, one of the questions the inquiry is being asked to consider is, are those rules adequate? Should they be changed or not? But the whole point about the rules is that, indeed, so you can actually see for yourself how did they get to where they get to in terms of how they sampled the population, how many people they got, what questions did they ask, in what order, etc., etc., and the truth is that if, if the information that's publicly available doesn't adequately answer the question that you think you want to understand about a poll, uh, the companies are actually under an obligation to resort to their membership within a reasonable period of time to make this information available. Um, in fact, during the course of the election campaign, although it's not strictly speaking the rule of the council, um, pretty much every council puts up the detailed tables of their polls literally at more or less the same time that it first goes into the public domain, or certainly very shortly thereafter. So, for example, um, to quote one example, every, every, every YouGov poll that's published um, was available at 7 o'clock that morning, the day of official publication. So it's, it's, it, it's all available. Um, the difficult bit, of course, is you need to know where to find it, and that means searching the company's websites. But again, they, they should be reasonably, obviously available. Should be, at least. Uh, if you don't think it is, tell them. Say, I had trouble finding it. I'm one of the biggest users of this system, right? I spend many hours trying to... Occasionally, I write, say, hang on, your poll so-and-so is not, is not there. Where is it? But yeah, it is all available in the public domain. Thanks very much. Uh, I was also going to ask the question about the um, bookmakers because I think we were all taken by that story about the man who went into William Hills in Hope Street with 30,000 quid or something and, and put his money down and then didn't claim it for three weeks. I mean, how do they know? So my second question is, how did polling and stuff all start and why? And, and my second question is, do other countries um, you know, agonize about polls as much as we do? Um. Uh, well, every country, um, every, every democracy has opinion polls. Um, they, of course, have had a particularly important role in um, emerging democracies, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, certain parts of Africa, where you cannot necessarily assume that the electoral authorities are 100% honest. And in those circumstances, exit polls actually help to provide a transparency check that the count, for example, is being conducted properly and is not being the, re- the results not being affected by misreporting or ballot stuffing. So there's a particularly... I mean, I don't think that's an issue here, but that's a particularly important aspect um, elsewhere. Um, uh, some countries do um, uh, worry about binding opinion polls. Some, some do. Most don't. France has changed its mind on the subject. Um, and every, everywhere occasionally gets polls to get it wrong. I mean, the United States, back in 2008, 2012, uh, not all the polls were that wonderful. And people, you know, yes, they, they, they do, they do uh, worry about it. Um, but the truth is, everywhere that is a democracy does end up having a polling industry. Because the truth is, in a democracy, there is always widespread interest in wanting to know 
who is going to win, and particularly there's always widespread media interest in what is going, going to know who's going to win, and therefore that, gener- that generates the industry. When does it start? It starts, it starts in the late 30s, certainly in the UK and, and in the US, particularly a major prominent, uh, a prominent pioneer is George Gallup, um, which is thus the Gallup poll for many years, though it no longer exists in the UK. Um, it really came of age in 1948 with the US presidential election of that year when there was some uh, p- a polling that was done by the Reader's Digest. Or was it Reader's Digest or Literary Digest? Anyway, one or the other. And what they did was kind of um, send out postcards and ask people to kind of send them in, right? And their readership was disproportionately Republican. So they said the Republican was going to win. Gallup did a random probability survey, in those cases, those days, going and knocking on people's doors and got it right. And that was the moment where, as it were, the principles of polling were proven to be right, as opposed to effectively the accidental sample. I mean, one of the things you should never believe, right, um, you know, I, I mean, it's fine as a piece of fun, but if a newspaper or any website puts up, you know, are you for or against whatever, all right, completely ignore the results. Right, because there's no guarantee at all that, these, that the people who are being interviewed are in any way representative. What opinion polls are at least trying to do, not always succeeding, in coming up with a, uh, at least a, some, uh, the results of what a representative sample uh, would look like. So it, 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 it emerges in the... It really begins to come of age, therefore, in the post-war period. Um, by the 1950s, political science is beginning to take it on board and to use it for academic research. Um, um, and it's tended to grow. I mean, there are more um, because of the um, internet. Um, at least making polls very cheap, they're not necessarily uh, not necessarily uh, reliable. Um, we had more opinion polls in the last election than we ever had before because they're now now just. I mean, indeed, during the whole of the last parliament, we had polls never before. I mean, YouGov were basically polling virtually every day. Um, so um, it's now it's become ubiquitous. I think it will now tail off. The, after 1992, the last time the polls got it wrong. The media kind of, their passion cooled. But then, of course, what happened is that everybody said, of course, Tony Blair won a landslide in 1997, which is what the polls were saying. He did, and then people kind of regained their faith. So we'll wait and see what happens this time. Um, my question is, does our first-past-the-post-voting uh, system make polls more or less likely, uh, more or less accurate compared to, say, uh, proportional representation in the election results rather than individual constituencies? Um, well, the straight answer to you is that what any voting intention poll is at least normally trying to estimate is simply the distribution of the national vote share. And any estimates that are derived from that in terms of what that might mean in terms of the outcome in terms of seats is a projection and it's not something that necessarily simply comes off the back, off the back of that poll. So, that's the, so what, so, you know, the, 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 the error in the polls so far as the polling industry is concerned is that on average the opinion polls, what is underestimated Labour by, uh, underestimated the Tories by three and overestimated by Labour by four, whatever it is. Right? Those, it's, it's, the, it's the error in the estimate of the percentage vote that is the criterion by which you judge them. What, of course, is true is that it is more difficult to project any piece of polling evidence, and this includes exit polls, 
um, into CTAC comes under first past the post because under first past the post there is no arithmetic, there's no necessary arithmetic relationship between shares of vote and seats. It all depends on the geographical distribution of the vote as well as the level of the vote. Uh, now, if you understand the system, you can get some handle on these things. But yes, forecasting, forecasting seats under a national PR system, it just comes automatically off the vote shares. It's easy. Uh, under first past the post, it's particularly difficult. But that's not, in truth, what the opinion polls are trying to do. They're simply trying to estimate vote shares. And it's, it's the errors in vote shares by which we should evaluate them, uh, not uh, any projections in terms of seats that come off the back of them. Hi there. Um, it's the randomness of your, your job that I'm quite interested in. <laughs> I, as somebody that participated uh, as a, a campaigner, uh -huh. I'll no tell you which way, um, I was campaigning in Bears Den and yep. also in Partick. Yep. And I found through the two different locations, the more um, you had, the, the more likely or the more you were born in another part of the UK, yes. or if you had a lot of relatives that lived in another part of the UK, yep. the more likely you would be voting no. Yep. Uh, if you uh, had worked in the armed forces, or uh, you were working in the shipyards and you were building a navy boat, the more likely you would be voting no. Mm -hmm. The more Presbyterian you were, <laughs> with the various links to the monarchy, the more likely you were to vote no. Mm -hmm. The more middle class you were, mm -hmm. the more likely you were to vote no. Mm -hmm. And the rest were voting yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I found. That's what I found. Now my question to you is, how did you manage to get your random sample from that? Well, the answer to you is that if you draw a random sample, uh, hopefully you will have roughly as many Presbyterians in your sample as there is in the general population. You will have as many middle-class people as there are in the population. Um, uh, you'll have as many people living in relatively less, less well-off areas in the general population. You will have roughly as many people who were born out with the Scotland as you have within it, etc., etc. And with the exception of your point on ship workers, where I don't think there are enough of them in Scotland for us to, to pick it up, uh, all the other points you made you could identify from the samples of opinion polls that were conducted in Scotland during the election campaign. Uh, it's perfectly true. People who are born in the rest of the UK outside of Scotland were less likely to vote yes. Uh, people, middle class people were more likely to vote yes, particularly people living in affluent places like Bears Den as opposed to non-affluent places such as the East End. Um, uh, all these things are perfectly clear from the polling data. Yeah. But the point is, if you draw a random sample, you should get a sample that's representative of Scotland, including in the many varieties of Scotland, and thereby you should come up with an accurate estimate of whatever it is you're trying to estimate, in that case, support for independence or whatever. I mean, in practice, in the, I mean, in the referendum, the polls were, in the end, slightly too pro-yes. Uh, on average, they forecast a 47% vote, though it's also perfectly clear that the, more, that the closer the poll that was conducted to, po to polling day, the more accurate that it was, and therefore it's almost undoubtedly the case that the yes vote 
turned off slightly towards the end. We also know from uh, experience elsewhere, such as Quebec, that there tends to be a bit of a tendency for opinion polls to slightly overestimate the appetite for change. Um, but, I mean, they weren't bad. I mean, you know, they, they got us the, the picture, which is that basically the yes side were going to lose, but they had done remarkably well as compared with where they were starting off in the opinion polls uh, two years in, in advance. So I, I, think, I think the referendum, to be honest, the polls did reasonably well. I mean, there were actually, in the end, they did surprise me well because for much of the referendum campaign, they disagreed with each other. I was constantly writing, you know, panel base say it's going to be this high and YouGov say it's only going to be this high and then they ended up converging. That's a bit of a mystery we never quite got to the bottom of, but in the end, they ended up in roughly the right place, I think. Over here, yeah. And can I also see other hands, please? Anyone else? Yeah, one up there. Um, if you could come down to the foot of the steps, that would be great. On Presbyterians, by the way, that's largely a function of age. <laughs> right. Presbyterians tend to be older than most people the average in Scotland, and, age, and age, age was very strongly related. Or as I like to put it, people who are older than me were less likely to vote yes. Um, I wanted to ask the question, knowing a little bit about market research, which I grant yeah. is different from polling. Um, to what extent, because obviously any... I think what the message is coming across very clearly, what you've said is you ask a question, and that's important. You can position a question, yep. and you can interpret from that what you will. Mm -hmm. But to what extent then do, for example, political parties look at question X has been, um, been given, and the answer is Y? To what extent then do they drill down into that? And where I'm coming from is having done a little bit of market research in my work, you have qualitative and quantitative yeah. research. Yeah. And the qualitative research is where you take a cross-section of people and say, OK, well, you've told us this. Now, let's really delve into that. Now, to what extent do political parties or indeed government or anybody else actually um, do that? And another question I would ask you is, do you think that we, we run a serious danger that in the media, journalists um, really should be beholden to actually having some cognizance of that fact, that something which is positioned should be perhaps qualified or challenged? Okay, um, let's just exp uh, explain for the wider audience. Um, uh, what I've talked about essentially today are quantitative social surveys whereby you ask a large number of people a very strict set of questions and you can, all you can do is to respond with a limited number of answers, yes, no, or strongly agree, disagree, or whatever. Um, another whole branch of... Um, research activity uh, done for both market research and for political research and indeed also for academic work is so-called qualitative research of which probably the best known variety and indeed you'll sometimes see them being done in currently some bastardised form or another on television is focus groups so you get a group of you know, a dozen people or whatever to come together and to talk about uh, the subject that you are, that you are trying uh, to research in um, there's a slight difference of kind of um, uh, methodological philosophy. The, the assumption with qualitative research to some degree is that you can get at the reasons as to why people do something by asking them. The presumption with a lot of statistical research is you can get at what the reasons to why people are doing something by looking at patterns of association. So there's a kind of different methodological approach there. Um, but certainly, for example... Um, nobody should ever try to do quantitative survey research if they don't have a sufficient grasp 
of the way in which a subject is being discussed in a society that they can actually ask a question that's going to make sense in the first place. If you find yourself really, really struggling, then you know you shouldn't be doing uh, quantitative research. Um, uh, So to answer your question, yes, political parties do do focus group research. I'm struggling to remember the name of the the former Labour guy who uh, Tony Blair's... um, uh, not Manderson, no, no, the, the, the peer. Um, uh, Philip Gould, thank you. Um, Philip Gould, who was Blair's pollster for years, um, he did, I mean, he used to do his own focus groups. Um, sometimes we, some of us kind of suspected that Philip Gould heard what he wanted to hear rather than, you know, there's always a question of selection bias here, and it's certainly true when you're kind of talking about um, uh, focus groups where you're not, you know, taking a transcript and actually then going through and reading and rereading it and seriously examining what people say. But you're saying, oh, look, I, I listened to a focus group last night and this is what they said. Well, in those circumstances, selective per, uh, perceptions. But they, they certainly do a lot of it. Uh, Lord Ashcroft, who did a lot of polling, also did some qualitative research and he reported it. Um, it's often very, very insightful in giving you a sense of what lies underneath uh, uh, the quantitative research and, and sometimes throws up things that you have never ever spotted. So it's valuable. Yes, the parties do do it. They, uh, one of the ways of which they also use it quite heavily is rather than in terms of if finding out where people are at, is giving them, so this is kind of much more like market research techniques, of testing messages and saying, well, you know, if we came up with this message, what would you think? Um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they do that, that, that kind of work as well. But yes, it, it's also part of it. Um, not rarely done by newspapers because newspapers can't really report them um, but you'll see an occasionally uh, programs like Newsnight kind of get someone like Deborah Mattinson who does a lot of, kind of quality research um, to go off and kind of, and there's, a, there's an American guy they occasionally get to come across to go off and kind of, but of course it's a televised focus group and therefore you know whether people are necessarily quite behaving and responding the way they otherwise would is debatable but yeah no it's a um, crucial part of the process of understanding what's going on and particularly for trying to understand what, how people might react to something that's not yet in the public domain Thank you <clears throat> Foot of the steps over the Katrina. Uh, can I see any other hands that are wanting? Uh, come and bun down the front here. Okay. Any others? Thank you. Um, I just wondered what ideas are being considered to involve more young people. You said that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the short answer to you is, I mean, the main area in which, certainly on the kind of heavier end of uh, research, uh, has tried to do just to try to improve response rates in general is frankly paying people right? it's i mean the, you know the, at the moment you know for traditional survey research you know somebody knocks on your door and if it, and if it's a, a big survey like british social they might say look i want to spend an hour interviewing you all right um financial incentives help a bit but they don't get us back to where we were 20 years ago um beyond that um i am not sure that i have yeah, I mean, you, you do all sorts of things of trying to, to sell surveys in a way that's interesting. I mean, so one of the things, for example, which you know, my, my, my social activist colleagues always kind of have a joke about is um, you never ever, uh, if, you're, if, if we're doing a general social attitude survey, um, we never ever say to people, oh, by the way, and this, que- que- this survey contains quite a lot of questions about politics. <laughs> we will say it's about grandparenting or, um, you know, the health service, 
or something that people are actually interested in. And, 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 and if it's about health, absolutely. Well, the, the, one survey, the one set of surveys that can still get 70% response rates are health surveys. People will respond to health surveys. They think it matters. It thinks it's important. So it, it depends on the subject matter. So maybe, maybe the answer to it is that maybe we should be asking more questions about, I don't know, um, pop music. I don't know. Maybe we should put a few of those on. But no, no. I mean, it, it's, it's frankly, particularly as far as the polling industry is concerned, it's to do with availability. Younger people are just simply less likely to be at home and they are therefore just more difficult to get hold of. And even, but you might then imagine, oh, well, let's just get them on their mobile phones. Well, companies who've tried to get hold of you to add mobile phones to the numbers they use, and the number of them now do so, they still struggle to get young people. So, I mean, they just, you know. If you've got any ideas, do let me know, because it's a big problem for the industry. I just wondered if you're allowed to work with organisations, because does that defeat the purpose of it being random in the first place? Probably, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, down the front here now, Katrina, thank you. Actually, I've got two questions. One, if the methodology of the polls was the same in terms of, the, of Scotland as of the rest of the, of the UK, why were the polls more successful in predicting the result in, in Scotland? The second question, presumably these polling organisations are commercial businesses. So do the people who are organisations who commission the polls take into account the, the reliability or the success of these organisations or not? What basis do they in fact choose which companies to conduct the polls? Okay, let's take it in, in, in order. Um, the simple answer to you as to why the polls are relatively accurate in Scotland as compared with England and Wales is that there aren't very many Tories up here. Um, the slightly more... S- so you know, there, 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 there's, there's nothing, there's, there, there's nothing to you know. Underestimating the Conservatives is getting difficult in Scotland because there are so few of them left. Um, slightly more serious answer to you is that actually, if you, I mean, it's more difficult in Scotland because there aren't so many polls. There are only three polls you would regard as final polls. And to be honest, with three polls, you know, well, maybe they'll be, maybe they're on average they'll be right or not. They did actually, on average, overestimate Labour by about a couple of points or so, and slightly underestimate the SNP. So, pointed, but it comes back to earlier points. I earlier points I made. What what people take out of opinion polls are not the exact numbers; it's the story, all right? And the story in Scotland was the SNP are going to get an awful lot of votes, an awful lot of seats. And that, indeed, was the story that transpired. Therefore, the fact the polls said it was 48 rather than 50 and Labour were 26 rather than 24, whatever it is, kind of we ignore. But actually, there's a little bit of the evidence there. But otherwise, uh, so I, I'm not sure that Scotland is wholly immune uh, from, from the issues at stake. Um, on, uh, sorry, your second question again. Uh, oh, yes, how, how do they choose? Um, well, of course, um, I mean, most commissioners... Most, most public opinion polls are commissioned by newspapers. A few are occasionally commissioned by campaigning organisations, particularly the trade unions more recently, but most are done, most are done by, uh, by uh, companies. It's essentially a commercial deal between the newspaper or organisation and the polling company. Usually they're done, there's a long-term relationship. So YouGov, for example, have been polling, uh, not quite exclusively, but they've, they've been doing all the polling for... Um, News International ever since about 2004 Um, 
Comres used to have a, a, a contract with uh, independent newspapers, but they've now switched um, to the Daily Mail. Um, ICM have been polling for the Guardian since, what, the 1980s or something or other. So um, companies, I mean, newspaper will tend to keep with the company for so long as, A, the price is right, and that's also true in the opposite direction, and so long as they think they've been getting a decent service. But you will get breaks um, on occasions, either because of change of newspaper ownership uh, or because the polling company you know, is thought to have done badly um, or whatever. Um, so, it, but it's like all commercial transactions, right? A buyer thinks that somebody's going to provide them with a service at a reasonable price, and somebody who provides a service thinks that um, the buyer is going to buy it at a reasonable price. I mean, for, for lots of polling organisations, um, political opinion polling is not really where they make much money. It's actually a very small section of the work of most of these companies, most of which is in market research, and for many of them, it's done as a loss leader. I mean, the, what they hope to do is to prove that their methods are good by, by basically facing this test of this is what we said was going to happen, this is what happens. And as I said, it's a really, really tough test. Um, but of course, occasionally they come a cropper, in which case they then kind of go, well, why did we do this? But, you know, yeah. So that's, that's essentially where we're at. Thank you, John. Uh, last chance. No one else? Late, late, oh, yeah. one over there. Sorry, didn't see behind Katrina. Sorry, can we have the microphone? Yeah. Hi there, I was going to ask about the young people as well, how you engage them. Do you ever think about going to Glastonbury or something like that to get well, the, the people Yeah, are? but the, 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 the answer to you is that, I mean, I mean there was, used to be a whole argument about doing polling in, in the street as opposed to in the home, right? And if you're just simply taking people in the street, you've got, you know, I mean... Yeah, I mean, if I were trying to do a poll in Glasgow, right, and I just got people in the Byers Road, you know what, I somehow think it was, will not be a random sample of Glasgow's population, right? And I'm not sure that the, that the folk who go to Glastonbury are necessarily going to be... Re so the difficulty is coming up with a sample that's representative. Um, and um, that, therefore... Well, they might be, but you'd have to do quite a lot of work to prove it. And trouble is, Glastonbury only happens once a year. Polling is taking place over a whole 12-month period. From an article in The Guardian that Glastonbury is mainly older people and very wealthy middle-class people <laughs> who go glamping. Um, so, do you want one, one last thing? Any, anybody else for one last... There's one last opportunity. Okay. Just on the young people thing again... Um, the 16 and 17 year old vote yes. was a credit uh, to Scotland in all aspects of Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that, that made the, the turnout with 86%. Uh, not amongst 16 and 17 year olds. Not amongst that, but no. it helped to generate. It helped to generate. And the, the young people I worked with, uh, worked with, um, do most of their, their talking through the internet. Yes. So, could we possibly ask them what their suggestions are? Because they were a big part of that work. Um, well, I, the answer—I mean, again, kind of get a hold back here, right? Uh, right. I, I've already—I've already told you that if you add mobile phone numbers to a phone sample, 
It doesn't increase the proportion of young people. If you do surveys over the internet, which most of them were done during the election, you do not get hold of young people, right? So the things that you might think work, i.e. using the things that you think that young people use disproportionately, we know they use disproportionately, are no more effective at getting young people to participate in surveys than our more traditional methods. So it's, it's to do with the interest and motivation and availability of the age group rather than necessarily the technical means by which they are being uh, acquired because they are, you know, much of the polling is being done by methods that actually, you know, younger people are more likely um, to be involved in. Um, the, the referendum had all sorts of consequences in Scotland. One, of course, was on turnout. Um, if, I was, if you were going to choose an occasion upon which to... Um, promote the cause of 16 and 17 year olds being involved and that was the way to do it because we had an 85% turnout amongst the general population just be slightly careful, it was 75% amongst 16 and 17 year olds right oh sure uh, yeah sure but the truth is I mean the, the international research evidence on this to which the Scottish referendum fits beautifully is that 16 and 17, you'll get a higher level of turnout amongst 16 and 17 year olds than you will amongst 18 to 24 year olds, but you will still end up with a lower turnout than you will amongst, amongst adults in general. And that's exactly the, uh, the pattern in Scotland's referendum. One last up the back, yeah. It was just a suggestion for uh, more younger people. Um, if you decided to be a bit more lax with your um, uh, random sampling, you could do it like all social sciences do and just basically interview and use uh, psychology students for the majority of their data, <laughs> which is, of course, a very uh, uh, random sample. Um, but no, on a more serious note, you could, um, it would not be possible to look at universities and colleges, which have quite a wide variety of younger people. You might, you might think there's quite a variety of young people. I wouldn't satisfy my standards, I'm afraid. Not even, um, not even colleges for, say, um, not necessarily higher institutions? No, sure, no, 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 and on that depressing note, <laughs> um, can I just uh, say uh, that if you want to be in our mailing list for the Philosophy Cafes and you're not already on it or you've changed your contact details since you were last on it, then please see Anne at the end and she'll take, update your details or take your, your new details. As always, we promise never to contact you about anything other than Philosophy Cafes. <coughs> okay. Um, listen, in thanking John, can we also thank each other for coming today? Because, as always, without everybody coming, there would be no event. So a big thank you to you, John, and a big thank you to each other for today.